The lion eats straw like the ox, when men who formerly were strong and cruel and wild by nature are so changed by the gospel that they become gentle, meek, humble, and feed on the word of life, along with those who are members of Christ's church. One writer has this to say about Isaiah's prophecy. Since we have here a description of Christ's kingdom, which is not composed of beasts, wolves, serpents, lions, etc., but of men, we must understand that in all my God's holy mountain, that is, the church of Christ, Zion, the peace that is to reign is of such a nature that those people who formerly were like wolves, bloodthirsty lions, insidious adders, will by the grace of God put off their old nature, cease to harm one another, and peacefully dwell together as the lambs of Christ, and feed on the green pasture of the gospel. Of this change of nature St. Paul speaks in plain words, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Not only the ferocious persecutor Saul, who became the gospel-preaching, soul-seeking Paul, is an example, 1 Timothy 1.13, but the entire history of Christian missions abounds with such examples. A quote by L. A. Hurboth in a booklet, The Millennium and the Bible, page 12. When Ezekiel says that Israel is to be restored to her land forever, chapter 37, verses 24 through 28, he indicates clearly that those words are not to be taken literally. He says, And my servant David shall be king over them. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever, verses 24 and 25. Jeremiah likewise says that David is to be their king, chapter 30, verse 9. If we take that literally, then David must be raised from the dead to be the millennial king in Palestine, David and not Christ. The literalists say that David is here used as a symbol for Christ, but that is not what the Bible says. To take David as a symbol for Christ would be to spiritualize the prophecy away. If the other parts of the prophecy are literal, this must be too. To take these descriptions literally is to miss their real beauty and their great spiritual import. The literalistic premillennial interpretation of many Old Testament passages is, as Rutgers points out, even beneath the level of certain passages in the Old Testament itself, which transcend the particular local color and open up the higher spiritual, ethical, and universal. These carnal materialistic notions, he very appropriately adds, are but the swaddling clothes of Judaism. A quote from Premillennialism in America, page 255. We have indicated earlier that one of the errors of Premillennialism is that it fails to understand that the Church is New Testament Israel. It persists in thinking of Israel as composed only of the physical descendants of Abraham. Dispensationalism carries this principle to an almost unprecedented extreme and insists that in all cases Israel must mean fleshly Israel or the Jews, that it can never mean the church, and that the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament must be fulfilled to the Jews literally. And since some of these were not fulfilled before the nation of Israel passed out of existence, they tell us that Israel must be re-established in Palestine and these fulfilled in a future age. But the fact of the matter is that the spiritual relationship is more important than and takes precedence over the physical. Paul stated that quite clearly when he said, 
Know therefore that they that are of faith, the same are sons of Abraham. And again, if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Galatians 3 verses 7 and 29 And Christ himself placed the spiritual above the physical when he said, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 12:50. The epistle to the Hebrews is one sustained argument that the old forms and ceremonies and relationships have passed away forever and that all nations and races now stand as equals before God. The Old Testament Sacrificial System The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews has much to say about the endless repetition and the futility of ancient sacrifices. He shows that their only value was to symbolize and point forward to the one true sacrifice that was to be made by Christ. We have been sanctified, he said, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest indeed standeth day by day, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 10 verses 10 through 14 Reverend Harold Decker, one of the speakers on the Back to God Hour radio program, says concerning the futility of the animal sacrifices and the finality of Christ's sacrifice as set forth in this passage, Continually, day by day, year after year, God's people made their sacrifices according to the Old Testament law. The writer calls to mind the mountains of herbs and grain and meal offerings which had been brought before the Lord the rivers of blood which had flowed from millions of sheep and goats and droves of cattle. And then he raises the question, why the constant repetition? Why the endless pilgrimages to Jerusalem? Why the interminable fires upon Israel's altars? Why the shedding of blood? The reason, says the inspired writer, is that none of these brought lasting relief to troubled consciences. So on and on went the sacrifices. But of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, he says, He was surely the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Let the blood now dry on the horns of the altar. Let the ovens that bake meal offerings now be cooled. Let the sacrificial animals go back to pasture. Final atonement is accomplished. Let all men everywhere now look to the one sacrifice of Christ finished on the cross. In its doctrine of an earthly kingdom with a restored temple, priesthood, and sacrificial system, premillennialism is a recrudence of Judaism. Snowden has set this forth quite convincingly, and we quote him at length. It is one of the plainest universal teachings of the New Testament that the sacrifices of the Mosaic economy were fulfilled in Christ and were then done away as vanishing shadows that prefigured the substance or as morning stars that heralded the rising of the sun and were then lost in its light. Paul's warnings against a return to these are cited. How turn ye back to the weak and beggarly rudiments, wherewith ye desire to be in bondage over again? Ye observe days and months and seasons and years. For freedom did Christ set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and be not entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Galatians chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 and chapter 5 verse 1.
The epistle to the Hebrews, says Snowden, is one long and conclusive argument that the old ordinances are fulfilled and done away in Christ, who needeth not daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 7, verse 27 Who would ever have expected that in the face of all this teaching and of these earnest efforts to rid the Christian church of these old ordinances that had served their day as the withered and empty husk had served the corn. There would arise among believers in later times a school of interpreters who would teach that the whole mosaic system with its temple and central seat of worship and its seasons and feasts and sacrifices, its Passover and its unleavened bread, its daily peace offerings and bloody burnt offerings and sin offerings, its altar streaming with blood and its smoke and incense was to be restored in Jerusalem after the second coming of Christ. Who would have believed this incredible thing? And yet this very thing has come to pass and now is. This doctrine is first rooted in the logic of the system. It is a cardinal principle of premillennialism that the prophecies of the messianic kingdom in the Old Testament apply not to the first but to the second coming of Christ and to the millennial kingdom he will inaugurate. It is a further principle of this system that these prophecies must be interpreted in a literal sense in accordance with its teaching that the Bible means what it says, and to abandon this mode of interpretation in its application to these prophecies would be to conceive the principle of figurative interpretation, and this again would wreck the system. Premillennialism is therefore required by its own logic to take the prophecy of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 in which an idealized vision of the temple is set forth, including the Passover and all the bloody offerings which are expressly commanded, chapter 45, verses 21 through 25, and transfer it bodily and literally to the millennial kingdom in Jerusalem after the second coming of Christ. And this system must do the same thing with all similar prophecies. Isaiah declares, and they shall bring all your children out of all the nations for an oblation unto Jehovah, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith Jehovah, as the children of Israel bring their oblation in a clean vessel into the house of Jehovah. Here we notice that the means of conveyance have long since been outmoded and belong to a distant age. Surely they would not be appropriate for the very advanced and prosperous kingdom that premillennialists expect in the millennium. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Jehovah. Chapter 66, verses 20 and 23. Zechariah prophesies, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations that come up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Chapter 14, verse 16, And all they that sacrifice shall come. The inescapable logic of premillennialism requires that all these and similar prophecies be literally fulfilled in Jerusalem. This is Judaizing Christianity with a vengeance. And this is revolting, and some premillennialists do revolt at it. David Brown quotes Increase Mather, a premillenarian, as saying, And the most loathsome work they do perform, both to God and man, 
that dig up the ceremonies out of that grave where Jesus Christ buried them above 1600 years ago. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, pages 206 to 209. Let there be no doubt but that dispensationalism does teach the reestablishment of Judaism following the church age. Louis Berry Schaefer, late president of Dallas Theological Seminary, says that after the church age has run its course, there is to be the regathering of Israel and the restoration of Judaism. A quote from Dispensationalism, page 46. And Merrill F. Unger, also of Dallas Theological Seminary, says, At the second advent, Christ will restore the Judaistic system with far greater glory and spirituality than it ever had in the Old Testament period until its complete dissipation with the destruction of Herod's temple in 70 A.D. The heart and center of reestablished Judaism will be the Millennial Temple, in connection with which Judaism will enjoy its final state of development. A quote from Bibliotheca Sacra, the June-March issue, 1950. Only to a literalist does the reestablishment of the sacrificial system and temple ritual seem sensible. To a post or amillennialist, it is too materialistic. Premillennial logic, however, does not permit these sacrifices to be spiritualized. To do so would remove a cornerstone from the system, and if consistently carried out, would lead straight to conclusions that they are most anxious to avoid. Some premillennialists say that the sacrifices to be offered in the millennium will only be memorials of the work that Christ accomplished on the cross. Schofield gives this explanation when he says, Doubtless these offerings will be memorial, looking back to the cross, as the offerings under the Old Covenant were anticipatory, looking forward to the cross. Page 860. This explanation is also given by G. Campbell Morgan in his book, God's Methods with Man, page 118. But that explanation contradicts the premillennial principle of literal interpretation of prophecy and cannot be allowed. Ezekiel says plainly that the priests, the sons of Zadok, shall again serve, that they shall be given a young bullock for a sin offering. He says further, And thou shalt take the blood thereof, and put it on the four horns of the altar, and on the four corners of the ledge, and upon the border round about. Thus shalt thou cleanse it, and make atonement for it. Chapter 40, verse 46, and chapter 43, verses 19 and 20. Those who are so insistent that the Bible means what it says cannot be allowed to spiritualize and allegorize statements such as these when found in sections which they themselves say describe the restoration of the Jews in Palestine during the millennial era. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 is at least 20 times more extensive and detailed than is Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10, which premillennialists say must be taken literally. So those who insist on literal interpretation find here a program for the restoration of the Levitical ritual and priesthood, despite the fact that Galatians and Hebrews each makes it plain that the temple, the human priesthood, and the ritual have been abolished forever. In any event, the reinstitution of a sacrificial system could not do other than dishonor the sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary, which the scripture represents as once for all sacrifice. Hebrews 7, verse 27. The New Testament has absolutely nothing to say about such memorial sacrifices, nor anything about rebuilding the temple. 
Furthermore, all memorials are unnecessary when the one to be memorialized is present in person, as Christ will be after his second coming. We may also add that one feature of Roman Catholicism that we find particularly offensive is its doctrine that in the Mass the sacrifice of Christ is repeated, that the bread and wine actually are changed into his flesh and blood, the unbloody repetition of the Mass, as it is called. Concerning the subject of animal sacrifices during the millennium, Alice says, The thought is abhorrent that after Christ comes, the memory of his atoning work will be kept alive in the hearts of believers by a return to animal sacrifices of the Mosaic Law, the performance of which is so emphatically condemned in passages which speak with unmistakable plainness on this very subject. Here is unquestionably the Achilles heel of the dispensational system of interpretation. Its literalistic and Old Testament emphasis leads almost inevitably, if not inevitably, to a doctrine of the millennium which makes it definitely Jewish and represents a turning back from the glory of the gospel to those typical rites and ceremonies which prepared the way for it, and having served that necessary purpose have lost forever their validity and propriety. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 248. Snowden's conclusion regarding this phase of premillennialism is worth quoting. He says, Enough and more than enough has been said to prove that premillennialism is a recrudescence of Judaism. It is Judaistic in its method of establishing the kingdom and above all in its restoration of the sacrifices after the second coming of Christ. This is indeed renouncing the logic of Paul and turning back to the weak and beggarly rudiments and putting our necks again under the mosaic yoke of bondage. This is turning the clock of religious development back two or three thousand years. It is putting the altar back in Jerusalem and going back to the blood of bulls and goats. If any premillenarians pause at this or say that they do not hold it, we must repeat that we are not dealing with individuals but with the logic and literature of the system, and there can be no doubt whether the logic leads and what the representative writers teach. Truly all forms of religions die hard. Judaism has strange tenacity and still clings to the Christian church. Judaism is a withered husk. The corn has gone out of it. Jerusalem is a splendid memory. The eagle, once it gets out, can never be crowded back into its shell. Christianity has taken flight from Mount Zion and never will it officially be back there. Jesus himself swept the kingdom off that mountaintop as its central seat and released it to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, that men everywhere may worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Paul, with one stroke of his pen, spiritualized the whole Old Testament economy when he wrote, And if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3:29. Peter also spiritualized the Old Testament and buried the Jewish eschatology when he wrote, Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2:5. This is the way the New Testament throughout spiritualizes the Old. This is the glorious liberty of the children of God, Romans 8.21. And when we read these premillenarian interpretations and arguments, 
we hear Paul's earnest and eloquent voice ringing across all these centuries and bidding us, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5, verse 1. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, pages 217 to 219. It is admittedly difficult in many instances to determine whether statements in Scripture should be taken literally or figuratively. As regards prophecy, that often cannot be determined until after the fulfillment. Most of the Bible, however, particularly the historical and the more didactic portions, clearly is to be understood literally, although some figurative expressions are found in these but that many other portions must be understood figuratively is also clearly evident. Even the premillennialists must take many expressions figuratively or they become nonsense. Since the Bible gives no hard and fast rule for determining what is literal and what is figurative, we must study the nature of the material, the historical setting, and style and purpose of the writer, and then fall back on what, for lack of a better name, we may call sanctified common sense. Naturally, the conclusions will vary somewhat from individual to individual, for we do not all think alike nor see alike. It should hardly be necessary to point out that true postmillennialism is supernaturalistic through and through. Pre- and amillennialists sometimes represent this system as though it taught the conversion of the world through merely humanistic and evolutionary processes. Present-day modernism does set forth a program of world betterment by natural rather than supernatural means, and opponents sometimes represent that as postmillennialism. But by no stretch of the imagination does such a system have any moral right to be called postmillennialism. That is not the sense in which the term has been used historically, yet comments of that kind have given rise to much unjust criticism. Representative postmillennial theologians such as Augustine, Brown, Hodge, Dabney, and Warfield have been consistent supernaturalists and have believed in a fully inspired and authoritative Bible and in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit as the only means by which an individual can be brought to salvation. On the other hand, the distinguishing feature of present-day modernism by which it is to be identified wherever it shows itself is its more or less consistent denial of the supernatural, that is, the denial of the plenary inspiration of the scriptures, the trinity, the deity of Christ, blood atonement, miracles, final judgment, heaven and hell. It is concerned primarily with this life, and it proposes to reform the world through education, social and economic progress, improved health programs, better relations between capital and labor, etc., those things are good as far as they go and wherever possible should be encouraged, but they are only the byproducts of true Christianity. The fact that different views concerning the second coming of Christ and the millennium have been held and are held should not discourage anyone from making an earnest search for the truth. This situation in the field of theology is no different from that in the field of medicine, in which eminent doctors hold differing views as to how certain diseases should be treated or how the human body should be cared for. We have, for instance, medical doctors, chiropractors, osteopaths, surgeons, dietetic specialists, physical exercise enthusiasts, etc. But that does not prevent us from believing in health, 
nor from seeking the best methods to preserve health, nor does it save us from suffering the consequences if we choose wrongly. Nor is the situation in the realm of politics and statesmanship any different. We have various political parties, Republican, Democrat, Socialist, Labor, Communist, etc., each advocating different principles as to how the nation should be governed, and particularly at election time we hear very conflicting opinions. There are various theories of education and of church government. In each of these spheres it is our duty to search diligently for the truth and so far as possible to separate truth from error. Our beliefs concerning the manner and time of the second coming of Christ will not change that event by one iota, but what we believe concerning those matters will very definitely affect our lives and conduct while we are waiting for that event. It is to be regretted that these differences of opinion, even among those who accept the Bible as the inspired and authoritative word of God, can always be dealt with by unprejudiced exegesis and friendly discussion, rather than made the basis for quarrels or tests of orthodoxy. As a general rule, premillennialists, basing their views on a more literal interpretation of Scripture, have a tendency to feel that those who do not accept their system hold a lower view of Scripture and that they are not consistently Christian. One might easily receive the impression from reading premillennial literature that only they believe fully in the Lord's return. It has even reached such a state in some dispensational circles that if one questions the personal reign of Christ in an earthly kingdom, he is met with a question such as, Then you do not believe that Christ is to return? An examination of Bible Institute catalogs reveals that most of them restrict faculty members to premillennial view. Some are reluctant to graduate a student, or at least will give him a lower grade, if he does not accept that view. Prophetic conference literature presents a one-sided futurism and encourages the inference that opposing views are not evangelical. Some make a hobby of premillennialism, finding it with remarkable ingenuity in almost every prophecy and vision and promise from Genesis to Revelation and giving it undue prominence in their preaching. Gray places the number of New Testament references to the coming of Christ at a minimum of 300. And Morgan says that on an average, one verse in each 25 in the New Testament refers to it. The differences between post, ah, and premillennialists which should be treated as comparative non-essentials, actually divide the churches and becomes a serious impediment to Christian fellowship. Unquestionably, the vagarities of dispensational extremists, not merely in such sects as Jehovah's Witnesses, Millennial Donists, and some Pentecostal and Holiness groups, but also in the conventional evangelical churches, has divided Christians into antagonistic groups and have done much harm to the cause of Christianity. In discussing these problems, then, two important facts should be kept in mind. One, evangelical, post, ah, or premillennialists agree that the Bible is the Word of God, fully inspired and authoritative. They differ not in regard to the nature of Scripture authority, but in regard to what they understand Scripture to teach. And two, the three systems agree that there was a first advent and that there will be a second advent which will be personal, visible, glorious, and as objective as was the ascension from the Mount of Olives. 
It should be added that while the Church has debated and reached conclusions and has embodied these conclusions in her creeds as regards all of the other great doctrines of the faith, the subject of eschatology still remains in dispute as to the manner of Christ's return and the kind of kingdom that he is setting up or will set up in this world. For this reason, the Church in practically all of her branches has refused to make any one of the millennial interpretations an article of the creed and has preferred rather to accept as Christian brethren all those who believe in the fact of Christ's coming. Hence, while personally we may have very definite views concerning the manner and time of his coming, it would seem that our motto should be in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The Nature and Purpose of Prophecy Also in connection with the subject of interpretation, some things should be said about the basic nature of prophecy. Premillennialists regard prophecy as history written beforehand. We prefer to say, however, that the primary purpose of prophecy is to inspire faith in those who see its fulfillment and only secondarily to inform us of what is going to happen in the future. At the time of fulfillment, the observer looks back to the author of the prophecy and is led to acknowledge that he could have spoken only by inspiration and that his message, therefore, is authoritative and trustworthy. Prophecy thus comes under the general category of miracle and its primary purpose is to accredit a message or a messenger. This was the purpose set forth when Jesus said, I have told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass ye may believe. John 14.29 And again, From henceforth I tell you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass ye may believe that I am he. John 13.19 Here the primary purpose of prophecy like that of a miracle in the physical realm is to inspire faith. It is, in effect, a delayed miracle. As proof that this is the correct principle, we find that most of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ were so vague and enigmatic that they could not possibly have been understood until after their fulfillment. While some were in language that were easy to understand, such as that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, and that he would heal the sick and afflicted, the meaning of the more important ones relating to the nature of his work of redemption and to the nature of the kingdom that he was to establish could not be understood until after their accomplishment. As examples of the latter we may cite the Protevangelum given in Genesis 3.16 And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The extensive prophecy concerning the suffering of Messiah as found in Isaiah 53. Various prophecies concerning the nature of the kingdom that was to be established as found in Isaiah chapters 2, 11, and 66. The nature of the work of atonement as prefigured in the priesthood, ritual, and sacrifices. And the promise made to David that the throne of his kingdom was to be established forever involving, as we see in the light of the New Testament, a long line of merely human kings and then a transition to the Messiah who is the true King of Israel. The manner in which the events connected with the crucifixion of Christ as predicted in the Old Testament would be fulfilled could not have been understood until their fulfillment. 
that is, that his hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22:16; that the soldiers would part his garments among them and cast lots for his robe, Psalm 22:18; John 19:24; that not a bone of his body would be broken, Exodus 12:46 and John 19:36; his resurrection, Psalm 16:10, Acts 2:27 and even the death and burial of his betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Psalm 69, verse 25. Psalm 109, verse 8. And Acts chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It was clearly impossible for any Old Testament Jew to draw from these prophecies a plan of the life of the coming Messiah. The promise given to Abraham that his seed should be very numerous and that through his seed all the nations of the earth should be blessed finds its primary fulfillment not in the totality of his physical descendants as at first sight would seem to have been indicated nor even in the descendants through Jacob who stood in a special relationship to God but in those who are his spiritual descendants Galatians 3 verses 7 and 29 and the seed through which all the nations of the earth were to be blessed was not his descendants in general but one individual which is Christ now to Abraham were the promises spoken unto his seed. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Galatians 3.16 Who could have understood that before it was fulfilled? Concerning this feature of predictive prophecy, Campbell has well said, The enigmatic form of prophecy precludes the possibility of the merely human actors in the fulfillment being aware that they are participating in the predicted event. It permits the foreknowledge and power of God to appear while in no way encroaching on the free agency of man. The advent of Christ, his character, ministry, sufferings, death and enthronement in glory are all predicted in the Hebrew prophets in such a manner that no one living prior to their fulfillment was able to read their meaning clearly. And yet the diligent reader today who studies the ancient records in the light of the fulfillment cannot fail to see that he has before his eyes clear testimony to the importance and the supernatural origin of the records in which the predictions appear. The disciples of Jesus probably knew well enough what the prophets had spoken, but their familiarity with the written word did not of itself enable them to see the nature or character of the kingdom over which Messiah would reign. Not until they were compelled by contemporary events did they lay aside their racial preconceptions and recognize the glorious vision of all nations of men united in one universal brotherhood under the risen and glorified Christ. A quote from Israel and the New Covenant, page 170. It should be further evident that as the Old Testament prophets used figures of speech with which their people were familiar, that is, language borrowed from the vocabulary of the old economy, such as the land, the temple, the sacrifices, etc., to describe the glories of the Messianic era. So no doubt the New Testament uses terms with which we are familiar to describe the future state, which we as yet are able to grasp only faintly. We are told enough to make it clear that great and glorious events lie ahead, but the manner in which those events are to be accomplished and the details concerning the future course of the kingdom, both on earth and in heaven, are left largely unexplained. 
In all probability, the realities of the future state will be as different from our ideas concerning them as the realities of the present era have proved to be different from the ideas of the Old Testament Jews. We must keep in mind that it was the mechanical, literalistic method of interpreting prophecy that led the Jews at the time of Christ to expect a Messiah who would conquer their enemies and set up an earthly political kingdom in Jerusalem. Fastening their eyes on the very letter of Scripture, they became tragically blind to its real meaning and spirit, with the result that when Christ came unto his own, they that were his own received him not, John 1.11, but rejected and crucified him. This same literalistic principle can also have tragic results in our day, in that it arouses hopes that are false and disappointing. This is particularly true in regard to the view that the Jews still are to be looked upon as God's favored people, that Palestine belongs to them as a matter of divine right, and that prophecy foretells a glorious kingdom for them in Palestine. It is productive of even more serious results in the church when it is employed to teach that Christ is to set up a 1,000-year political kingdom in this world, and so to divert attention from the real purpose of the church, which is to evangelize the world during this present age. Nearly a century ago, Dr. Charles Hodge warned against the unnatural insistence of premillennialists on literalism as an ignis fatuous, as he called it, a false or misleading fire which leads those who follow it they know not whither. That method proved disastrous for the Jews who tried to predict the details of Christ's first coming. Most likely it will not work any better for those who attempt to set forth in detail the order of events for his second coming. As a matter of fact, no premillennialist can carry out the principle of literal interpretation consistently. No one has yet devised a sure method for distinguishing between the figurative and the literal. Many statements in scripture clearly are figurative and the premillennialist must spiritualize them no matter how critical he may be of post or amillennialism. No one can take literally the statement that the saints in paradise have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7.14 Or that the victorious saint is to be made a pillar in the temple of God. Revelation 3.12 or that the devil, who is a spirit, can be bound with a chain and shut up in a deep pit for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. We do not take literally Christ's words, This is my body, and this is my blood, although these two sentences are composed of very plain, short, simple words. Roman Catholics do take these words literally and get their doctrines of transubstantiation, and the math. It is inconsistent for premillennialists to pick and choose in deciding what statements they will take literally and what ones they will take figuratively, while at the same time criticizing post- and amillennialists for accepting figurative or symbolical interpretations when those seem preferable. If figurative or symbolical interpretation is wrong in principle, it should not be resorted to at all. Otherwise, premillennialists do precisely what they accuse post- and amillennialists of doing. Take scripture literally where that seems preferable and spiritualize where that seems preferable. Another principle of interpretation is that when a prophecy or promise has been fulfilled once, 
there is no valid reason why it must be fulfilled again or repeatedly. A present-day condition involving this principle relates to the state of Israel. Some tell us that since Palestine and the surrounding lands were promised to Abraham and to the children of Israel, and that since those lands never were fully occupied, or because they later were lost, they now rightfully belong to the Israelis. But in Joshua 21 verses 43 and 45 we read, So Jehovah gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. There failed not aught of any good thing which Jehovah had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. In 1 Kings 4.21 we read, And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. In 2 Chronicles 9.26 tells us, And he, Solomon, ruled over all the kings from the river unto the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Hence we conclude that those promises have been amply fulfilled and that they do not apply to the present-day state of Israel. Part 2 of the book, Amillennialism Chapter 1, page 109, Introduction The definition of amillennialism, as previously cited, is Amillennialism is that view of the last things which holds that the Bible does not predict a millennium or period of worldwide peace and righteousness on this earth before the end of the world. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.